Good morning. And welcome to worship. It is officially December. It is Christmas month. The young couple slowly moved their way down the slopes and into the city of Shechem, the ancient settlement. It was here that Father Abraham built his first altar to God. And it was here that Joshua led the conquering Hebrews in pledging themselves against the covenant with God. The couple walked between the mountain of blessings and the mountain of curses. Their ancestors had promised to uphold the covenant to receive the favor spoken upon the first, but they turned their back on their word and instead received the punishments spoken on the second. The couple felt the promise and the sin of their ancestors pressing down on them as they passed these ancient peaks. How could they, the descendants of those oath breakers, be the ones chosen to parent the Messiah? We light the second candle and call it peace. May we come to peace with our past and let go of our shame. May we come to peace with who we are as we embrace who we can be. God, we look to the monuments of our past sins. We carry their shame, but you call us to forgiveness. May we be refreshed by your spirit this day and emburdened so that we may dance at the sight of the Christ child. Amen. In Joshua chapter 8, 30 through 34, a ceremony is celebrated by Joshua and the Hebrews, one that was preordained in the days of Moses. This is what it reads. Then Joshua built on Mount Ebal an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites. He built it according to what is written in the book of law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones, on which no iron tool has been used. On it they offered to the Lord burnt offerings, sacrificed fellowship offerings. And there, in the presence of the Israelites, Joseph wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses. All of the Israelites, all the Israelites with their elders, officials, and judges were standing on both sides of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, facing the Levitical priest who carried it. Both the foreigners living among them and the native-born were there. Half of the people stood in front of Mount Gerizim and half in front of Mount Ebal, as, the Lord, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded them when he gave them instructions to bless the people of Israel. Afterwards, Joshua read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, just as it is written in the book of law. Amen. Edward de Vere was the 17th Earl of Oxford. He's one of those legendary figures of King Elizabeth I's court. You know, remembered along the lines of Earl Robert Dudley, Sir Walter Raleigh, and Sir Francis Drake, not only as a man who did a great many things, but also one of the Queen's favorites. He was a politician, a poet, a playwright, a diplomat, and even a champion jouster. However, 
Devere was not well liked. It was mostly his fault. He was quick to anger. He said things he shouldn't have, and he, well, held grudges. It often ended, ended up with him, I, uh, with him being in hot water because of what he said or what he did. And quite off, just as often, he ended up in hot water because of what others claimed he said or did because he was just that disliked. One of the more humorous stories told at his expense is about the time that he went on a self-imposed exile. The story goes as thus. Once, when Edward de Vere, Earl of Oxford, was bowing before the queen, he quite loudly passed gas. De Vere was so embarrassed by this faux pas that he left the queen's court and traveled for seven years. Finally, he thought, it has been long enough that no one will remember what happened. He returned to England, and the queen welcomed him back in a grand party. When he approached her, she said to him, My lord, I quite forgot the fart. Most people, I would argue all, though some would say not, have embarrassed themselves at one moment or another in the past, and they wish that embarrassment would go away. Whether it was passing gas before the queen, or accidentally calling the teacher mom or dad in front of all your classmates, or arguing continually with your brothers that the ice cream you once had was called peanut butter swivel and not peanut butter swirl. I realized later I was mistaken, but it still comes up at least twice a year. Other times, though, what has happened in our past, we want buried and forgotten because it was inherently sinful. Something that we did or someone else did that was wrong. We have a choice. You know, with the lighter things, we can bring it up and joke like with it as I just did. Those darker things, we like to try and bury them as deep as possible so nobody will think of them. Nobody will remember it. Sometimes we will even take the little bits of that history that look grand and we will try to gild it to make it look grander so that the shadows that they cast aren't quite so noticeable. Now, the story of Edward de Vere is actually satirical. It was told in a series of short, pithy essays, pithy stories by a man named John Aubrey. And we know this one couldn't have possibly be true because Edward de Vere was a well-known man and he didn't disappear for seven years. But it plays on what was true about him, about his vanity, his pride, his shame. And it reflects a truth on all of us. We can't will the past away. We cannot run from it. We cannot bury it. We cannot even guilt it. Instead, we must simply accept it for what it is and do our best not to repeat it. We are always walking around the monuments of our past. And for Israel, those monuments were not as easy to ignore and some, especially two of them, 
These two monuments that stood high and proud in the very center of the land that was once theirs. Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. They're twin mountains. They overlook the modern city of Nablus. In ancient times, the city was known as Shechem. People first built a town there over 6,000 years ago. Meaning by the time that Abraham first visited there, it was already an old settlement. It was there that Abraham built his first altar to the God in the promised land. Later, it would be the home of Jacob's well, then Joshua's altar, then Joseph's tomb, as in Joseph who went to Egypt. They brought his bones back up, and that's where his tomb was built. Eventually, Shechem would become one of the Levitical cities, that is, the cities that were run by the priests. And then it would become the meeting place and the first capital of the northern nation of Israel. It was important. But the mountains were just as sacred, just as important as the city below them. It all started about 40 years after Sinai. You know, they were at Sinai. God told them, you can go into the promised land. And they said, no, it's too scary. And so they were told, yeah, you don't get to go in there anymore. For 40 years, you have to wander. After 40 years, there were only three left, three of that generation. Joshua, his friend Caleb, and Moses. But Moses was coming to the end of his time. He knew he was not allowed to enter. So he decided, it is best that I teach these new kids the law. After all, all of them have been born either during the wanderings or they were very young during their time at Mount Sinai. And so he gathered them together and he gave them the law a second time. We call this book Deuteronomy, which literally translates second law. He began by describing their journey to that place of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of their promises made at Sinai, of, the, uh, of all the things that befell them because they could not uphold their end of the deal. He told them that you will need a reminder when you get into the promised land. So you are to go to these two mountains. And he said, see, I am setting before you a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commands of your Lord, uh, the Lord your God, that I am giving you today. The curse if you dis disobey the commands of the Lord your God and turn from it. I... Aye, aye, aye. Turn from the way I command you today by following other gods, which you have not known. When, you, when the Lord your God has brought you into the land you are entering to possess, you are to proclaim on Mount Gerizim these blessings and on Mount Ebal these curses. He opens it up by saying, you're going to do what I'm telling you later as a reminder. Then he begins teaching them the law. And as he finishes, he comes back to how they are to do this reminder. He gives them a list of blessings they are to, um, that will happen to them if they uphold the covenant and followed by curses should they break it. And so that's the reading we have today. Joshua goes up and builds the altar on Mount Ebal. Then the tribe split into two groups, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulon, Dan, Naphtali. They all stand on the 
the flanks of Mount Ebal. And they shout all men to a list of curses read out to them by the Levites. I actually want to show you what it's a little like. So each time I go like this, say all men. Here's the curses. Cursed is one who makes an idol, a detestable thing to the Lord, the work of skilled hands, and sets it up in secret. Cursed is anyone who dishonors their father or mother. Cursed is anyone who moves their neighbor's boundary stone. And we're getting there. Cursed is anyone who leads the blind astray on the road. Cursed is anyone who withholds justice from the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow. It's a review, a review of the meaning of the law. Not every single one is listed, and this is still only a small smidgen of the full curses. But it's a reminder of what it means to follow, and that by not following, you are out of line with God. And then, on Mount Gerizim, the other tribes, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, the two half-tribes of Joseph and Benjamin, they stand together and proclaim what comes with obedience, the blessings. They say, you will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed in the crops of your land and the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. Your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. You will be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. If you follow, if you obey, all of these things in your life will be fruitful and blessed. And then the men on Mount Ebal respond with what happens if you don't. It's the reverse. You will be cursed in the city. You will be cursed in the country. Your basket and kneading trough will be cursed. The fruit of your womb will be cursed. The crops of your land and the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. You will be cursed when you come in. And you will be cursed when you go out. It is symbolic and it is practical. A reminder, a need to, as you are coming into this new land, to be reminded of why you are allowed to live here. Ebal and Gezerim are also symbolic in that they are at the center of Israel. They are in the sight of what many of the stories, uh, they are in the sight of where many of the stories of the patriarchs happen. It's also even a large amphitheater so that when all the people stand there, they hear everyone. Mount Ebal, the mountain of curses, is to the left of them, to the north. When you, the ancient Hebrews, they oriented their lives towards where the sun came up. The east was their cardinal direction. To the north, to the left, that was considered the place from which curses came, from which evil descended. It was cold. It was harsh. Just like the mountain, dry and desolate. Gerizim was to the south, to the right, from the land from which plenty is given, from which good comes. And unlike Ebal, Gerizim was surrounded by springs and things that were green. Now for a time, for a time the people followed this law, they were faithful. But as we know at the story of Israel, they forgot their covenant. They sinned against God. They sinned against one another. 
And slowly but surely, what had been said on the Mount of Curses, on Mount Ebal, came to pass. And right there at the feet of these two mountains, the nation broke in two as the northern tribes left the Davidic kings to form their own nation. The nations of Judah and Israel eventually became no more. And through those centuries had passed, Mary and Joseph must have been reminded of how their ancestors' covenant on these mountains was renewed and then broken there. Evidence not only apparent in their own people, but in their cousins. After all, Mary and Joseph are descendants of the people of Judea. They are Jews. But around the base of Mount Gerizim, from the early days to even today, lives the remainders of the people of the northern tribes of Israel, the Samaritans. Not even cousins, siblings in God, people of the same son, people of Jacob, of Isaac, of Abraham, that have become estranged, the curse that broke the relationship of the tribes. Perhaps this journey was harder for Joseph than the typical man. After all, he was of the line of the kings. His ancestor David had been the one that brought the people together and into their golden age. But it was the grandson of David, one of, jo one of Joseph's sires, that had broken it, Rehoboam, who declared there at the base of the mountains to the people who said, lighten our load. He declared, my father made your yoke heavy. I will make it heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. I'd like to take a note out that I do not know how you would scourge someone with scorpions, but that sounds terribly unpleasant. Then, when all of Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your own tents, O Israel. Look after your own house, David. Rehoboam was the first king to have no redeeming qualities. Sure, Saul, David, Solomon, they all had their faults. They were not perfect men by any stretch of the imagination. But most of the time, they tried to do the right thing, even when they messed up. Rehoboam was just evil. He just was fine with breaking laws, whatever made sense for him. You know, there are 20 rulers, starting with Rehoboam until Zedekiah, the last ruler of Judah. And of that, Abijah, Jehoshaphat, Joseph, uh, Jotham, uh, Hezekiah, and Josiah were the only good ones. That's five out of 20. I mean, sure, that's better than Israel was doing up north, but still, 25% good kings? I'm not sure that's a bragging right. Joseph was the descendant of Jeconiah, who was the grandfather of Zerubbabel, the governor of Judea under uh, the Persians. And in the generations since then, their family's position had only further been lowered to the point of Joseph. After all, he may have been an artisan, a man of some ability, and he may have been well known in his village as a righteous person, but compared to the kings of his family's past, 
he barely even qualifies to be a shadow of their glory. On top of that, he is now walking through that valley in which his ancestor Rehoboam had broken their nation because of his pride and arrogance. Sure, it's true. Like Ezekiel wrote, the child shall not share the guilt of the parent, nor the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the righteous shall be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be charged against them. But there is a big difference in knowing that you are not responsible for the failings of past generations and others, and being actually free of their mistakes. Perhaps as Joseph mulled over the past, he looked over at his young wife and, real, and decided he needed to reevaluate re what it means to live in shame. Because just because Joseph decided not to divorce her and to accept her child as his own does not mean that the public shame of her getting pregnant out of wedlock was gone. He and Mary both knew who that child was. That this was a God-ordained child. But Joseph, I'm guessing, still noticed the whispers, the finger-pointing of the other Nazarenes. But it seems, at least from the little bit we get to know about Mary, that despite her age and despite her inexperience, she rises above that. And what should have been her shame, she finds joy and pride for the small part she gets to play. I mean, we see this when she visits her cousin Elizabeth, and she echoes the words of Hannah, the mother of another God-ordained child, Samuel. She's saying, my soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has been mindful of this humble servant state. For now on all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has brought down rulers. I'm sorry. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down the rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. That's right, every single Christmas season, I'm getting in the Magnificat at least once. I love that scripture. But it shows that Mary walked above the shame. She, more than Joseph, more than the Jews, had more shame heaped upon her. After all, the shame of Joseph's family was tinged with the glory of it. Not to mention it was something of the distant past, not his own. The shame of the Jews was something that all of them carried. Some, but her shame. Her shame of being pregnant, that was hers, in hers alone. She knew that God walked with her and that she should look towards the future. Shame may help us avoid the pitfalls that come, but it should not prevent us from going on. Just as Isaiah wrote in his 50th chapter, the Lord 
the sovereign Lord has given me a well-instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. He wakens me morning by morning, wakens my ear to listen like those, like one being instructed. The sovereign Lord has opened my eyes. I have not been rebellious. I have not turned away. I have offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who would pull out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking or spitting because the sovereign Lord helps me and I cannot be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint. I know that I will not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. He who will bring charges against me, let us face each other. Who is my accuser? Let him confront me. It is the Lord sovereign God who helps me. Who will condemn me? They will be, wear, uh, they will be worn out like a garment. The moths will eat them up. God. Mary walks in that kind of confidence, knowing that God will walk with her no matter what. Joseph's family shame, that will disappear in the descendant of him, the descendant of David, who will bring the people into a new kingdom of God. A man who will later come back to that very spot and sit beside the well of Jacob and through the symbol of a simple cup of water, offer grace in relationship, bringing the Samaritans back in relationship with the Jews. A man who will mend the broken covenant. A man who will bring about the promise made to Abraham that, would, that originally led him back to this spot. The name Shechem is a reference to the shape of the town. If you find a picture of it, you'll notice that to the south lies Mount Gerizim, directly to the north is Mount Ebal, and the city lies between. It forms a great saddle, and that's what the name Shechem means, saddle. And that's what that place became, a saddle. A saddle worn around the people of shame, weighing them down, of concern, of worry, being unable to move forward in their lives. How is it overcome? By acknowledging it. What does Jesus tell us to do over and over again? Acknowledge what you've done wrong. Ask for forgiveness, and it will come. The shame of the nation is acknowledged and let go. The shame of family of Joseph is redeemed as we see that the family of David eventually walks in line with God. The shame of Mary is wiped away by a young woman who walks upright and lives righteously. We each have our own shame. Shame that we carry from our own lives. Shame that we carry from our family's story. Shame that we carry because of our nation. Shame that we carry because we're people, and we've walked away from God. I can't say that you won't feel it still. But it's okay to also accept it and to set it aside. Because it should never keep you from walking onwards. Just as Mary and Joseph walked through that literal valley of shame, between the two mountains. So we do too. 
but we should follow their example and keep going forward until we reach the manger. Don't let your shame keep you from God. We light the candle of peace today so that we come to peace with our past and accept what may come in the future. Walk upright. It's from a mountainside that the curses and the blessings were said with a warning that you get one if you don't obey. For them, it was a lot. It was complex. It was hard. But Jesus changes that by reminding us that it really isn't that hard if you just follow the basic precepts. He says, my yoke is light. And one of those things that we are commanded is to forgive. One of the hardest people to forgive is ourselves. So be gentle with yourself. And know that God loves you and cares for you. That you can let go of the things you've done in the past because they do not define who you are. God defines you. You define you. So be at peace with the past. And walk forward. What little candle there's left in here. Walk forward with the light. Knowing, ah, it's a hard fit with the bell. Walking forward with the light. We're just giving up on that. Sometimes things work out well, sometimes they don't. Walk forward with the light. Because that's what we're given. Keep going towards the manger. Don't let your shame, don't let the things that don't let you forgive yourself, don't let those hold you back. Christ invites you openly. Be at peace. Amen.